Hi, my name is Jesse Ken, and I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great records. I've produced over a thousand records, written two books, and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast, where we get to go deeper on how some of Atlantic's artists have made the amazing albums in their catalog. We will hear firsthand from the artists and the team behind them that helped craft these amazing records and get to know the little secrets that go into making an amazing album. In this episode, we're going to talk about Grandson's new EP, A Modern Tragedy, Volume 1. Jordan Benjamin, a.k.a. Grandson, is a Los Angeles-based solo artist who's been taking the world by storm with his politically charged message. When he descended upon the city he calls home today, he began to work with other songwriters, but found his voice along the way by combining the aggression of hip-hop, rock, and EDM. With the release of his first EP, A Modern Tragedy Volume 1, we get a good dose of what is to come from this strong voice. With the first single, Bloodwater, already climbing up viral charts, it seems imminent that this is a voice that will be shaping the discussion of music in the years to come. One of the things that strikes you about Jordan once you meet him is he's incredibly good at talking about politics and what exactly he thinks about each issue. He's both concise and potent about what exactly his message is. As a lifelong political nerd, it truly took me back. And the fact that he's able to merge this message with music that sounds as powerful as what he's singing about grabs your attention the second you hear his songs. I don't want to give too much away, so I'm going to let the people involved tell you about it. Here's Jordan himself to begin the story. I've been writing music since I was in high school. Acoustic guitar, ballads, hip-hop, uh... All sorts of shit. Can I curse? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of writing a lot of music. Went to school, went to college, university rather, in Montreal, where I uh, started uh, singing in an acapella group. I started DJing a weekly throwback hip-hop night. Started getting more into hip-hop production. Started doing, yeah, a lot of writing. Starting to figure out my own voice. Really serendipitously linked up with a team that on the internet after putting out one tiny little snippet of me like rapping on a rooftop and ended up moving to Los Angeles right after my 20th birthday, dropped out of school to write for other artists, figure out my own sound, began working on what would become Grandson at the end of 2015, spent most of 2016 kind of incubating, fleshing out the process, figuring out my writing style, the writing style of my writing partner. And then uh, first song came out September 2016. Here we are. All right, not so fast, though. That's not where we are. First, Jordan hooked up with Atlantic Records. I want to hear the story of how that happened from first Molly Lehman, who's A&R at Atlantic. I asked her how she first discovered Grandson's music. Well, I can't tell you the exact specifics, but I can tell you that it was um, in the fall of 2016, and it was on SoundCloud. And I remember being like what is this like this is there's so many parts of me that are responding to this you know like there's you know almost like this old like you know sort of rage against the machine era that that was like very like new the trap drums caught I don't know the whole thing and then also the messaging on it and it was really special and um, I emailed a meet uh, and, you know, all, all we do is listen to music all day. So when, when something stands out, you notice it and, you know, it's like a physical response. So I emailed Amit, the manager, and was just like, I can't stop listening to this. What, what is this? What's going on? So we started emailing back and forth. He came in and met a couple of times. And I really liked the manager. He was very bright. Um, but I, I didn't meet Jordan, actually, for quite a while. 
So as far as I know, during that time, they were kind of percolating and working on music, but he hadn't played any shows. And there was actually one show that he was booked on. I got a notification that the show was canceled. And I hit up Amit and I said, what's going on with this? I, you know, I wanted to see grandson. And he was like, wait, what? Like, I actually told him that the show was canceled. But finally, this, this winter is when there's a Roxy show booked. And so finally, you know, we're going to get a chance to see it. And I think, you know, especially in this day and age and this era and with this particular kind of music, for me, it is so important to see the live show. Not that the live show has to be perfect, but that to be able to really, truly deliver this kind of music, you need to have the energy. You need to vibrate that those feelings and what you're talking about. And it really has to come through and it has to feel genuine and real and We've all seen this done poorly. So anyway, so the seeing the live show was kind of the next natural step. It just took a long time for it to happen. And they had put music up on Spotify. Allison Hagendorf, who is the head of rock over there, put her arms around it and was really loving it. And so there was some stuff starting to go on on the research side at this point with Bloodwater. Um, which is the single. And um, so, you know, people starting to perk their ears up and the Roxy show's booked. And so we go and my cohort, Johnny Minardi from Field by Ramen, he comes with, we, we both head down to the show and it's awesome. Like, awesome. Like we turn to each other and we're like, oh, okay. Like this is so far beyond our expectations of what seeing this, this show was going to be. You know, I think we were just hoping for it to be good. And it was, you know, but there was men in dresses crawling on each other's shoulders, screaming every word. And, and grandson is just like going bananas on stage. The guitar player is insane. It's so the whole energy is, is amazing. We were just like, this is the real deal and got really excited. He also played some new records that are going to come out in this next EP, which were like, whoa, like the new stuff is as good as the other stuff and it's even better and it's hitting so hard and it's so good live. And a funny story about that show is another label who shall remain nameless, the A&R guy. I was um, talking to Grandson's manager. He came and got physically between us and started pushing us apart and said, don't, don't talk to her. Don't talk to her. I want this. This is mine. And it, it was another major also. And I mean, it was all like, I know him and we all like had a, you know, we all like had a laugh about it, but I was also like, that's funny. We'll see how that goes. But, you know, I think, I think all of us that were there were like, you know, all of us label people were so impressed with, you know, just what it was, what it felt like. It, it did end up being competitive and we actually, we brought them to New York. You know, it's one of those, like they're getting to know us. We're getting to know them. We bring we bring um we bring Jordan in uh, to meet Julie Greenwald, and you know Julie is such an incredible you know feminist. I don't know if she like wants to call herself that, but she's so she's so like she took Atlantic down to the Women's March, and she's done su- such incredible stuff. And so Jordan's wearing this shirt that has a, a naked woman riding on a shark, like a drawing, okay. and. Right. So I'm kind of looking at this like, okay, how's this going to go down? And I'm just getting to know Jordan at this point also. And he's so bright and he's, and he's so, you know, well-spoken and interesting, but I have no idea what this shirt is. So Julie's like, Jordan, that's what, that's interesting. True. What, what's, what's that all about? You know, just 
kind of sun it out. And Jordan, just you couldn't have asked him to say something more right. But he basically was like, oh, this is this is one of my girlfriends. She drew it. She I think it was something like she raises money for like a women's charity. <laughs> like, like the most incredible, kind, cool socially active right on answer for like a dude wearing a, a shirt with like a you know a naked woman riding on a shark and you know and no, no one set that up it was just like that's who he is he's just like that dude who is you know has all this consciousness around him and it was just it was a funny cool interesting introduction into the atlantic world now I'm going to have Johnny Minardi, who also handles A&R for Grandson, tell his part of the story. I heard Grandson a few different times throughout him releasing music for a few months prior to me being able to see him live. And he had released five singles by the time we went to see him. Then went to the show with Molly at Atlantic. And the songs that I had heard, I thought were great. And then when seeing it made it all come very full circle because the show is absolutely a rock show. And it very much is just energy, connection with fans. And it was great to see just this crowd screaming back at him, you know, every word of every released song and him getting down into the crowd, him, you know, just being so involved and energetic. There was just such a strong connection that you kind of don't see every day, especially the first time you're seeing a band uh, after only hearing a couple songs here and there. Yes, yeah, I think he had four. No, he had five. I think five. He's he had released five singles by the time we went to see him. Molly and I both left that show very much just on a high from it, telling the entire building, especially the New York team, that like it's you know it's a real deal. This kid has just got it. It's he's just so convicted to his message. Like this is really this is a really important artist outside of just having hooks and big songs. Like there's a message that needs to be you know boosted up. We need to provide a platform for him and help build this. So. After the February show, I think we literally brought him in a few weeks later. We signed him, I think, a week after that, maybe two weeks, and then released the song Thoughts and Prayers like two weeks later. So everything was done in like a two-month span, I would say. That And that's like sparing a couple a week on either side, maybe at best. You know, every conversation I had, he was dead serious with us. I mean, the first meeting we ever had, not, not the first meeting after we signed, you know, we were slapping high fives, hugging, whatever. And he's like, cool, now let's get down to fucking business. And we we're like, holy shit, like just pinpointed to the, uh, you know, the intensity of let's get working. And then he, that's when he played us the song. And he's like, I want to record this next week. It's got to come out next Friday for the March and everything's got to be important. You know, this is very specific. So again, he is very clear and focused. We're just putting, you know, gas on the fire. Okay. So now that we know how that happened, grandson mentioned this whole songwriting thing. I'm really convinced that when artists are songwriting for others, they get really frustrated because they want to be out there pursuing their vision and they just can't stop thinking about that vision because they're learning all the tools to help someone else express themselves while they want to be expressing themselves. So I asked grandson about that and here's what he had to say. It was kind of like music consultation, basically. I would have sessions lined up for me through a publisher I would uh, meet that person, but at the time, beggars can't be choosers, but I preferred to work directly with artists. At first, I was doing some pitch stuff where I'd be working with three other writers in a room trying to write some big pop song, R&B song. 
uh, and I hated that process. Just the audacity to be trying to put someone's words in their mouth and going, well, I think she would want to say this. It's like, what the fuck do I know? What do you know? I felt like I was trying to, I spent a lot of time when I first moved to Los Angeles, writing what I thought people wanted to hear instead of writing what I wanted to hear. I think that that's a really easy thing to lose sight of when you're wrapped up in the behind the scenes kind of microcosm. I think it's really easy to imagine what going to the club would sound like or something, but I was in a more introverted kind of dark period in my own life, so it wasn't really translating, uh, and I wasn't getting any placements. I wasn't getting cuts. I wasn't getting paid, and so I started doing more sessions with artists. I would ghostwrite for some rappers. I was writing folk, country, pop, like literally I would just meet someone, try to um, get a sense of who they are and what they wanted to talk about. I would prefer coming in kind of on the back end of a project where they had already cut a lot of songs for the album because it was more realistic for me to actually get the cut. I had a couple times where I would write a song, the artist liked it, they would cut the song. I would call all my friends and family and go, I've got this, you know, placement, holy shit. And then the song wouldn't make the album. And that would be really, really deflating for me. So what I learned was if I come in at the the end of a project and if I ask them what well what haven't we covered especially if I could get a little more personal with them where maybe maybe the whole album was about turning up but secretly they just quit drinking you know maybe it was all about womanizing but they're actually like happily in love with their partner like a lot of the time I would find if I did a little bit of digging and I got them to be more vulnerable that I would actually write a song that they were more personally attached to and it wasn't all just the intention of like getting a placement I didn't really even care I knew in the back of my head I wanted to be a solo artist, but I was interested in that process and it ended up sharpening my kind of toolkit for when I came to work on my own project when I was finally ready to figure out my own voice. But yeah, and I still do some writing for some other artists and and it's something that is a fun kind of exercise for me to keep my skills, but yeah, that was predominantly what I was up to and also working on a couple different iterations of what would become my solo project. So inevitably, after you hear about their experience writing with other artists, you come to wonder, do they hate having that in their own life or do they see the value in it from all the time they've spent doing it? Um, Occasionally, it's definitely something that I do relatively infrequently and I don't work with other people unless I have a clear sense of what I want to talk about. Sometimes I like working with other people because they might challenge me. They might hear a chord progression and just be able to come up with melodies I might not otherwise have thought of or I would get really attached to one melody and then not know how to diverge from it. Maybe I would have this great verse and all I would think of when it was time to write the hook was to make it a continuation of that verse melody or vice versa or I would get the you know verse chorus verse chorus and then I'd hit the bridge and not know what to do so there are a handful of people that I have a intimate enough and comfortable enough relationship where we can challenge one another in that way but from a conceptual standpoint I personally think that it's important for it to come from me so I actually I've gone through different phases sometimes I want to write every day and be churning out content a lot of times especially recently and for this project I actually took it upon myself to just slow down live my life, read more, listen to more music, be living a life that allowed for more inspiration to come. And then when I had a clear sense of, okay, this is a subject matter I want to tackle in my song, be it an external subject matter about uh, the times that we're living in or something internal about how I'm feeling or my relationship, those are the sorts of things that 
I would then feel comfortable bringing to a collaborative place and being willing to kind of dissect, but I felt like it had to come from me. Um, but I write every, pretty much, I write every song with an incredibly talented uh, guitarist and producer by the name of Boone, who plays guitar on the records and has come up with uh, most of the riffs that you hear. So we've been working together basically since the inception of Grandson when I first started going as Grandson. And yeah, so different songs we approach different ways. I like starting from a place of knowing what I want to talk about. I then asked him about his collaboration with Boone and why he chose to work with him so closely. Yeah, we linked up through my manager. We had a couple different mutual collaborators within the industry. He definitely came from a more traditional rock space, was in a couple different projects, was in a relatively big band back in the Netherlands where he's from. And I come from a hip-hop space and an R&B space, but I was a fan of rock and roll, but I never really had the chops. So I, I always kind of felt that that was like, that was a precursor for me not being able to contribute to rock and roll. I had never actually been in a band or never worked with a band like that. And so we kind of pushed each other. Um, he would push me to go heavier, more rock and roll. Uh, I would push him to add more synthetic, low-end, more trap production, whatever it might be. And we both, I think, came from feeling relatively boxed in creatively. He had been doing a lot of pop and EDM work as a producer. I had been doing a lot of that kind of stuff as a writer. Both of us, I think, were looking for a kind of cathartic outlet that my um, artist project provided for both of us. Originally, I anticipated it being even more like hip-hop. I, I kind of pictured the roots when I first stepped into this space. I actually, when I was in university, I had worked a little bit with a band called Busty and the Bass. They're a nine-piece kind of jazz, funk, soul, hip-hop, uh, brass collective. Um, and I would hop on stage and do a couple songs with them. So I, I always knew that I wanted to be surrounded by talented musicians in a live setting. And when I had been doing hip-hop stuff, that, that always bothered me, like just having it be me and a DJ. And it kind of felt like karaoke almost. I knew that I wanted to do a live set that felt more raw that felt like an element of spontaneity an element of like vulnerability that I was missing so I kind of pictured it being more soul more hip-hop and we just kind of started writing we just didn't really have any particular agenda and it grew over the course of the first six months or whatever pretty exponentially in terms of we would work on a demo and something would change be it cutting the vocals more lo-fi tuning the guitars to B and using a baritone guitar was a huge change instead of like just a traditional electric guitar tuned to E those were sorts of little adjustments that would happen on, uh, demo by demo that we would then take and every time we would start a new one we had a more clear sense of okay what is what does grandson sound like when it became time to do a new song, we would already have certain presets for how we would treat the vocals, how we would treat the guitar. And then we did a song called Bills, which was really the first one that was like a real moment of, okay, um, we think we know what we're doing now. And the whole time we always knew that we were going to involve a third collaborator, a third producer in the mix. Um, and we've had the good fortune of working with a couple really talented ones, including Krupa, Tim Subi, Taylor Bird, uh, Highland. So we would typically get these songs to about 75% done. We would uh, get the get the live bass, get the live guitar. We would program some uh, live drum samples. 
and we would kind of structure the song out with the live vocals, have a clear sense of what we wanted to do with it, and then we would stem the song out, and then we would send it to another producer. Very rarely are we even in the room, we're more just providing very specific feedback, but I would always co-produce to get it to a point where I was comfortable sending it off. And then they would almost do essentially a remix, just kind of adding sprinkles of electronic and hip hop production on top of what these demos were, which was essentially like a band. And then those sort of remixes, those sort of new versions would end up being that which we put out. I then asked him to elaborate a little bit on what he wanted from his sound. One thing that I think was important for me was I wanted it to be riff-based. I think that that was where Boone's ear went naturally. Um, And for me, that was always something that was important and I don't think was really being um, addressed. You know, I think that people in music were beginning to throw a guitar and an 808 together. I don't think we reinvented the wheel by doing that, but I do think a lot of the types of guitar that would come over top was kind of strummy. A lot of it would be more like acoustic or 12 string. I always wanted there to be like iconic, badass guitar riffs throughout the project and throughout the, the process. But beyond that, it's like, I try and be receptive to different things. We, we touch on a lot of different subgenres of electronic production. There won't all, you know, some songs might not always have, you know, trap drums or whatever you want to call it. So I try and remain open to pushing forward creatively while not losing sight of what it is that Grandson means and stands for and sounds like to the people that are fans of what I'm working on. And in our creative space, we kind of have this mentality that I think is really important where if you have a better idea, then let's go with that idea. You know, I, I try to like keep the ego out of the studio and just be like, you know, beat it. If, if you aren't feeling something, make sure the feedback is has an, some specificity. And I challenge myself as a writer, you know, to dabble in places like production and engineering, not because I intend on being the one with my hand on the mouse, but I want to be able to articulate my opinions with a certain amount of clarity, specificity, so that I can have an active conversation with Uh, the producers I'm working with, with the mixing uh, engineers. You know, I think that those kind of things are really important. Two people might hear a song and want it uh, to be bigger, but their versions of big might be different. Whatever their influences were that led them to that space might create certain, like, rifts creatively that can be really exhausting. So I try and always challenge myself to have very specific opinions. And beyond that, there's nothing's off limits I've written a lot of shit songs. I'm not scared to fail. I think that you have to have that sort of vulnerability to make some shit that sounds differently. If you're just going to do what feels safe and, and, you know, that's not what the studio's for. Maybe on stage we're not going to be writing a new song on the spot, but when I'm alone in that space with myself and a piano, myself and a guitar, I want to actively be trying new things. So, so no, nothing's really sacrosanct. Nothing is without challenge. Boone had this to say about his first impressions of their collaboration. Super bright kid comes into my studio two and a half years ago. One of the most fun things about this whole thing was where I was just trying to kind of like create a cool sound around him. And I immediately felt when I recorded his vocals and when I saw how decisive and how, how prolific he was lyrically, um, I, uh, I, I was just like grabbing guitars left and right, trying to figure out like, hey, what, what suits this kid best, you know? And then, like, a week before that, I, I had bought, like, this 
baritone uh, off of Craigslist for 150 bucks that I kind of repaired myself and I plugged it in and I played like this is a guitar that like basically has six strings like any other guitar but it's like tuned really low and uh it's got this kind of low growly baritone sound basically and he was like that's it and we both knew it and like when we started riffing and working together and doing this these things and he was writing what I'm getting at is when he was like coming up with these lyrics it was crazy how much those lyrics reflected also what I had gone through. Like, there's a couple of songs that you guys haven't heard yet. So many things that he was writing about. I thought, like, holy shit, is he writing this about me? Like, While we're playing up the rock thing with Boone and how he contributes that side to Grandson, we have to also remember he got his big break by approaching J.R. Rodham and becoming a co-writer on Rihanna and Nicki Minaj's song, Fly. But he's definitely a rock guy. This story is really good. I was a huge Rage nerd. Like when I bought the first Rage Against the Machine record that year, I had to redo redo school. You know, it made made a huge impact on me, and it's 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 it feels like karmic almost to be able to like make music with Jordan because he actually like you know addresses these things that I want to like uh, write these powerful riffs to, and uh, that I want to like facilitate, and not just like for for your own like ego you know just also for something that's bigger than you when you last heard me talking to grandson i kind of interrupted to go off on this tangent and let him talk about boone but he started talking about the song bills which was the song that established the sound for this project so i wanted to get him to describe how he knew this was the direction for the project i would say one of the big things was the way that we differentiated the verse from the chorus, the way I felt that we had very specific parts of the song that that satiated different, it like checked different boxes of, of musical styles I wanted to infuse. So that one, I think we really intended for the verses to be really rock and roll feeling with a kind of stomp clap. It was almost like a gospel-y blues kind of thing. And then we left all this open space and, and we had the idea to kind of halftime the drums for the hook and we we got in with with highland and when he first threw the hi-hats together over top of the hook and when we took out the live bass and decided to include 808s i remember just feeling like fuck this feels fucking really big right from the onset of grandson the intention was we're either going to be and i'm either going to be doing it best or we're going to be doing it different i had no intention of contributing to an existing space musically I remember when I knew that I wanted to do something that was more influenced by rock and roll. One of my big problems um, was that rock and roll doesn't sound that different to me from a production standpoint. You know, I listen back to Rage Against the Machine's first album, and that's like 1992, and it still sounds relevant today, which is a testament to how well that music was recorded, same with like Nirvana, but is also a testament to how little rock has in some ways changed keep in mind this is uh, like 2016 this is the end of 2015 so i think since then more artists have been more receptive to infusing um synthetic electronic production in a way that doesn't feel too kitschy or too cheesy but at the time it was like well i just don't want to be a cover band i don't want to do this like nostalgia kick because if my whole thing is sounding like led zeppelin or rage or whatever like just go listen to those iconic bands that we grew up on you know i i had no interest in just contributing to something that already 
already existed. I wanted to actively push it forward. And also one of my reasonings was who's to say that John Lennon or Kurt Cobain or whoever would have approached music the way they did if, if they had the access to a music uh, technology that's available now. Who's to say they wouldn't have found an 808 cool? It's just never that cool to listen to the music that your parents listen to. You know, like since the history of time, people have found what their parents listen to kind of whack and whatever their parents like roll their eyes at, like feels fucking good, you know? So I think that um, a lot of people made the mistake of listening to trap production and turning their nose up at it and claiming that those kids that are making it like aren't real musicians and it's like who the fuck are you to say that i always wanted to infuse the kind of irreverence and ignorance that attracted me as a fan to those genres of music while still just having a badass guitar riff like there was something really cool to that i also always wanted to have a kind of yin and yang i always wanted there to be elements of the song that were very technically sound and also elements that were really really accessible you know i want there to be parts where you remember like fuck you know this is some real badass shit and i want another part to make you want to pick up a guitar and play it so with bills the riff itself was kind of busy kind of complicated but the solo the solo is only two notes really really simple really really easy for a kid to go oh i can do that you know that feels honest same with the way that we would approach how we recorded the vocals we recorded everything on a 30 dollar microphone you know it was like we always wanted people to feel like this is within reach like you can do this too originally all the vocals that we did for bills and for every other song we intended to be scratch vocals and we figured eventually when it became time to put these songs out that we would you know go into a nice studio and do everything again but the more that we listened to it the more that we just kind of liked the grittiness the more I just kind of wanted to keep things feeling that sort of like familiarity that for some reason I found in approaching certain parts of the production and, and parts of the recording process more lo-fi more kind of DIY garagey we also recorded and continue to record out of Boone's living room always been something that has just felt natural that's felt organic I don't want to lose that DIY feel to the way that I approach making music it's funny because like yeah you the, you referenced the first rage record and that re record is a sm58 with the speakers cranked in the fucking control room right and exactly like, like there is just something that you and you feel it like you really something just is communicated in a in a way i think that you can kind of lose it if you get too cerebral with the recording process and frankly i'm just not really a gearhead anyways like that's just never been my wheelhouse so i'm just receptive to whatever is badass whatever Whatever doesn't get too in the way between me writing the shit and, and recording the shit. Like, I just want to be able to turn on the preamp, you know, tap the microphone a couple times, put on the song and just and, 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 and let go. So those were the sorts of things that over the course of 2016, I started really feeling more comfortable with in terms of I always envisioned I wanted people to one day hear songs and go, that sounds like grandson. So I really was like, if that's what I want for other people, then I have to figure these things out now. And we spent a lot of time slaving over the production process, the mix process, and, and continue to. And whenever it gets really, really frustrating or difficult, I try and remind myself that the reason that it is this difficult and the reason we don't have very many references to go off of is because people aren't really doing it like this. And I'm proud of that. And though it's difficult, it, it's always... Um, exciting for me to know that we're trying to really do things differently and actively contribute to the evolution of rock and roll, making rock and roll more accessible, making rock and roll uh, more relevant to what a 
15 or 16 year old kid is listening to today. And that's all from a production standpoint. Like Nirvana for a 15 year old kid, Nirvana is a fucking t-shirt. That's 25 years ago. Like, and I think that it's, it, it's crazy to think about that. It's crazy to think about how bands like Blink-182 have, are, are so nostalgic for people now. Because I think that for a, lot of, for a lot of people around our age, it's like, wait a second. That's, that's still, that's still yeah. relevant to me, damn it. You know? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it's like, okay, there's this whole generation that's... And I think that music as a whole is shifting. I think that there are waves of a need for the push and pull of uniformity and artistic indulgence. You know, I look at how the hair band glam rock of the 80s led way to Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana and, you know, Rage and how those more left of center um, pop spaces created the conditions necessary for the for for the NSYNCs and Britney Spearses and Backstreet Boys to usher in the Dr. Luke, Max Martin era of the early 2000s. And I think that we are shifting back to a space where music is getting a little more, I don't want to say unique or, or anything that would uh, insinuate that, that those, you know, pop bangers aren't still awesome and they all have their place. Like, I'll still put on Teenage Dream by Katy Perry and rock out. Like, don't get me wrong, but yeah, but I, but I do think that, I do think that music is um, flipping back into where, where music that is taking chances and that is vulnerable. I do think that there's, there's space for that and I also think that the the sort of conversations being had in culture now are a little more urgent, a little more confrontational. I don't think having opinions as strong and vocalizing the way that I do is has ever been more accepted in pop spaces. I think that like being able to go put fucking Donald Trump with X's over his eyes on a, a single artwork and have people not really bat their eyes at that. You know, I think that that's indicative of the conversation changing. I, I really looked at the Bernie Sanders campaign and the way that young people were actually interested in really getting into the nitty gritty of the, this is really what's happening here. Um, that really inspired me and I really wanted to challenge myself as well as the people listening to the music I make to have these kind of conversations uh, with themselves, with their community leaders, with their parents, with their teachers, with their pastor. If I can play some small role in kind of instigating those sort of confrontations, that sort of contact, that to me was like a big win and something that I really wanted to be able to look back on and say that I stood for something in this kind of time. And now I'd like to pause this program and tell you for a minute about what you can expect with the rest of this season of Inside the Album. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans, both old and new. I like old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm more like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. 
Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring, nothing nowhere. Like first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is, and then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP, the indie rock band Wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No, and Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. the hardest part when we find ourselves back at the start but i'm not so brave and i'm not so smart It's pretty rare that you get to hear an artist talk that eloquently about how well thought out their music is but the funny thing is we haven't even gotten to the lyrics yet from a, a lyric standpoint, wanted to make sure that, you know, we were touching on things. Uh, the concepts I was writing about were unapologetically very much reflective of the times that I'm writing in. I really didn't want to be able to pick up and drop my music in any decade. And there are still songs that are about mental health, that are about relationships, about love, sure. But I wanted to talk about the sorts of things we talk about on, the, on this EP. I wanted to talk, to talk about police brutality. I want to talk about gun violence. I want to talk about climate change. I want to actively advance a progressive future forward for the predominantly young people that are listening to my music. And I also know that a lot of rock and roll spaces and spaces in America that are still listen to rock and roll, a lot of them might not necessarily have a voice in their um, playlist that is promoting these sorts of diverse, inclusive ideals. So I really just wanted to approach everything from the lyrics to the production really unapologetically um, relevant right now and reflective of the times that I'm making this music in. Since his lyrics have such a strong message, I wanted to find out where he's drawing inspiration from. I'm on Reddit a lot. Uh, I'm... I try and stay away from, like, CNN, and I try to find places. It's difficult to find spaces where you don't feel like you're being advertised to. You know, it's like watching watching political news coverage get metastasized and turned into wrestling really got me so fucking mad. Like, I really just felt like I had no... There was no greater conversation about, like, what do these people stand for? If you are an average American, what does voting for one over the other mean for you? I think that... That just got me so, so frustrated the way that we so the way that the left really did not address the very valid concerns about um, campaign finance transparency. I think that the way that we made it purely just about one character versus the other character, I think that the sort of conditions in the public education system, in the renewable energy, like the way that we failed to prepare large sections of America for this sort of change, the way that we created conditions for them to need change so desperately and be so dissatisfied with um, the way they had been represented in politics, our failure to address those sorts of things in an honest way. Uh, I think a lot of people 
kind of hit the fucking self-destruct button and threw up their middle fingers to this whole system. And I don't think we're doing enough to acknowledge that. I don't think that I don't think that the DNC has really changed as much as I would have hoped that something as insane as a reality TV show host becoming the president, you would think that that would change things a little bit more, but still completely dominated in politics by billionaire oligarchs. That kind of shit just pisses me the fuck off. Like, it pissed me off back then. It pisses me off now. And so I'm sitting down trying to write songs while I'm watching this shit. I'm bombarded with it every day. And it just it just felt natural, like, that I was going to make music that was fucking angry. And for me, as an audience member, as a fan, I feel a sense of catharsis from a mosh pit. I remember listening to Audio Slave listening to Rage Against the Machine uh, back when I was like 13, 14, and I didn't really understand the sort of like Noam Chomsky socialist ideals that Rage might have in some ways been promoting. But when he said, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me, I was like, yes. You know, I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about, but that was, I was, you know, a hormonal teenager, and when I thought about my teachers, my parents, uh, you know, the cool chicks that wouldn't talk to me in high school, it was like, fuck yeah, this is a space for me. And so I wanted to create that space for, for other people. You know, it's been really interesting as we've begun to uh, get busier with touring. You know, just a couple days ago, we were in Somerset, Wisconsin. Like, this is Trump's America. People were getting down. People were rocking out. I try not to be patronizing. I try and have a little bit of empathy for, the, as, as I said, the sort of conditions that would lead someone to view these sorts of hotbed issues differently than me. I definitely surround myself you know, in a bit of a, you know, silo in terms of I keep people around me that think like me. So how am I going to look down on anyone else or claim to understand why people think the way they do, vote the way they do? And I'm not necessarily going into these spaces to um, alienate or ostracize or patronize. I just really think that there is unity across the board in feeling um, disenfranchised, in feeling fucking angry. And I think that creating a space for everyone to come together and jump up and down and throw some elbows creates an outlet for a lot of people. We don't need to go fucking shoot up a school. We don't need to... Not everyone that voted one way is a bunch of, like, liberal, hippie elitists. Not everyone that voted the other way is, like, racist, dumb. You know, it's like, no, to to put people in these boxes is exactly the sort of short-sighted, misguided mentality that led us to this clusterfuck in the first place, so... Now that we understand the ideas behind their songs, I wanted to talk to both Grandson and Boone about how these songs actually get birthed. Bloodwater was a song that was written pretty much over the course of a year, which for me is like a, a long-ass time to, to work on one three-and-a-half-minute song. I remember writing the idea of being a lamb to the slaughter. I felt very disenfranchised, and I remember around the time the Trump administration was taking over, their intent to basically dismantle the EPA and to remove science from how we addressed um, environmental policy. That was the sort of decision-making, and it transcends just that specific issue, but that, for me, was, I think, 
the starting point to begin to think about how people in charge of making these huge decisions with huge consequences, those types of people, wealthy, predominantly white, upper class politicians, are the absolute last ones to feel the reverberations and impact of those decisions. So I basically wanted to write a song where I held those people accountable, where those people had to stand and watch the manifestations of karma come to them. And I wanted to break down how many different ways that could be, be it like an uprising of the people, be it like a big earthquake or a big tsunami that made them finally admit their wrongdoing and try and squirm out of being held responsible in a way that I wanted to envision that. So that was what that song was about. And that was really where I started. We didn't have melody. We didn't have a chord progression, anything. And that was kind of why the song took so long to make. Because in the back of my mind, like I knew it was a really good, specific thing that I really wanted to talk about. And I didn't want to waste it on the very first thing that came to my mind creatively, you know? So it took a long time. We originally had the whole thing was wrapped, but it didn't feel like it fit. I wanted it to be melodic because it was such a esoteric, like it, it's, it's a pretty specific topic. I wanted to contrast that with a really, really simple melody, like a nursery rhyme. I always love that sort of contrast in my music that I kind of mentioned earlier with the guitars. I want to do that um, melodically and lyrically as well. I want there to be sections that are, the cadences might be really percussive and really busy, and then other sections that are really, really simple, really, really mnemonic and getting stuck in your head, you know? We just try. We just kept trying. Uh, I had maybe six different versions of what the verses were. Always kept the we'll never get free, lamb to the slaughter, what are you going to do when there's blood in the water? That was the one thing I was like, okay, I feel really good about that. We're not going to change that. Everything else, let's let's see if we can beat it. So we had different guitar riffs. We sat on, the, on what we were going to do for the drop like forever. Eventually, I was just sitting down at a piano and I found a kind of cool... And I originally wanted that to be the drop. But I was like, you know what? Let's... I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted as many kind of hooky, catchy sections as I could. I was like, let's take this melody that very well could be the drop and make it the verses. I wanted the verses to be really catchy. So then I wrote the verse, rewrote the verses to fit that melody while keeping a more specificity in what would it look like and feel like for that moment where that politician were to admit their wrongdoing. Look me in my eyes. Tell me everything's not fine. Like, admit the, the people ain't happy. The rivers run dry. You thought you could go free, but the system is done for. If you listen real closely, there's a knock at your front door. It was kind of just like diving into that karma. Like, do you hear how fucked you are now? Like, beg me for mercy. Like, I really wanted to really tackle like that. I just pictured like this like flickering light bulb, this like tied up politician. I don't even really know. But so so that was where we kind of worked from. Boone wrote a really gangster riff for not only the finger picking in uh, the intro, but he also came up with a fire guitar melody that was originally going to be the drop that we ended up using for the bridge. And then when I got to the bridge, I realized that I hadn't yet addressed who the, the me was in the song. I had been saying, beg me for mercy, beg me for forgiveness, but is me like 
grandson. So I wanted to flesh out, like, I made a list of all the different ways karma could come back and bite these people. And it was like, I am the people, I am the storm, I am the riot, I am the swarm. And I had this idea, I wanted to have this, like, animalistic concept because I think that there is a certain, like, banality, a certain, like, tribal mentality that gets revealed in conflict and in these moments. So I said, uh, when the last tree's fallen, the animal can't hide, which was kind of like when you strip people of their ability to be civil, you will see the animal inside all of us. When you put the people in a corner, we will bite that hand. Money won't solve it. What's your alibi? The song was originally called Alibi. I had like two working ideas, the blood water idea and a song called Alibi. And I realized that conceptually they were really talking about the same thing. So I just took the alibi kind of concept and I infused it. Like I want every song to feel like a greatest hits of five different songs that I'm working on simultaneously. Sometimes that takes time, which is why this one just took months and months. So we, we kind of shipped it off to Krupa. We basically, we had a filler for the drop, but we basically said to him, change whatever you want. If you think that there's something that's catchier or more iconic that we could do instead of the riff that we had written, it was much more like rock and roll on the drop. And he, this guy Krupa, sent back a version that was much more minimal. He was the one that actually wrote the da na 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 which was actually an electric guitar riff, but kind of treated like a synth. All of the drums on the drop were, were really, really EDM. Like the snare, we originally had a live snare, and he made it like a much more fat kind of EDM snare and put a lot of the, the electronic sprinkles, some of the uh, auxiliary production, some of the stuff behind the scenes. I'm really, really obsessed with textures behind my music. Sometimes we'll sample like a rainstorm or like a lion roaring and EQ it in a weird muffled way that you can't even really hear it, but you just feel it. We went back and forth on a couple different versions through some extra final touches on it, just Boone and I. It was mixed by a guy named Taylor Bird, who um, contributed production and mixing to my song Thoughts and Prayers. Also, Six O'Clock and a bunch of, uh, of other songs. It was cool, you know. We all come from different spaces, but we all loved rock and roll growing up. You know, Krupa comes much more from the electronic space. I come from the more hip-hop-oriented space, and Kevin comes from the rock space, uh, Boone. And so I think that we all challenge each other and bring certain parts of um, our sounds together. And it's always taken a village. I've always been quick to admit um, how, how grateful I am for the contributions of the people around me. And my manager, Amit, uh, Primate Music, has a lot of really, really constructive feedback through the entire uh, process. The mix was like a whole other beast. Mixing is the most challenging thing for me. It's so incredibly tedious in that we all get really, I definitely try and be a perfectionist, but at a certain point, I just have nothing more to contribute. It's I, I can't keep beating my head against a wall from a production, from a mixing standpoint. So I wouldn't say that like a mix is done when I give up, but a mix is done when I give up, when I'm like, this is as good as I'm going to get this right now. It's really easy to, to slip into analysis paralysis. It's really easy to like think your way out of getting it done, you know? And I think that you have to find that equilibrium of how cerebral you are and how much you just go off instinct. The mix process took took a minute, but... We got it done, and, and, and Taylor did a great job, and that was that. Boone was kind enough to make us this voice recording of him explaining his contributions to the song. So initially, Bloodwater started out as this riff we were just doing during rehearsals, which went like this. Uh, 
kind of sloppy, but you get the idea. And then after a while, Jordan found a new melody for it. When I heard the melody and, and the lyrics, I thought it was cool to do... this guitar part around it so and that's the one you hear in, in this song that's what the bass does basically and then I thought it was cooler to have the bass do that progression and have the guitar go that was the beginning of like the new and final direction for it oh yeah and then we also had like for a while we thought like the best the best way to do the drop would be the that part which is right now in the bridge for a while we thought that was like the just the hardest part which would be cool for the drop but when Krupa uh, made the drop the way he did we all figured you know kill your darlings basically and just leave it as a bridge and use it as a cool build-up for the final drop and that's what we did i don't regret it <laughs> Next up, Grandson's going to tell us how Stick Up was made. Stick Up was a song that actually happened really, really fast. I walked into this session, and Boone had already started the guitar riff that would be on the drop, and I really liked it. I Immediately, for some reason, it just felt like a bank robbery or something, and so I had the idea for, like, it's a stick up, get on the ground. But originally, it was more of just, like, a story about a bank robbery, and I realized, number one... It wasn't honest, it wasn't vulnerable, it wasn't telling any story that was something I honestly felt. Uh, number two, there's no reason to root for this character. I realized as I was trying to tell this story about this guy who holds a stick up, like, why, why root for this guy? So I realized I wanted it to be a kind of... I wanted to humanize the bad guy. I've done that in a couple different songs. I have a, a fascination in movies, in plays, in books. I sometimes will judge uh, how well the story is told by how how much insight they share into the bad guy i think that some stories do an excellent job and some it's it's too simple like he's just too much of a dickhead and it's like that's just not real life you know so i wanted to write a song about what kind of conditions would create somebody to go to like some some really uh drastic lengths so it became a song about washington dc uh it became a song about a a shooting in Washington, D.C., how would that story be told in a way that made you, I don't want to say root for the shooter, far from it, but rather understand the conditions that so many Americans are facing, where they feel like they are out of options, and how this guy would essentially be a martyr to shed light on a situation. I just started writing that story. Tom is a good father, two sons and a daughter, but he wakes up and he asks himself why even bother? He can't feed his family. 
the wage he's paid is insanity. Every day he's dealing with a new calamity. These were all just like conditions that would lead someone to uh, have their back against the wall and do some drastic shit. Um, lost his old occupation, but it wasn't immigration. I think that using immigration and, and using like Mexicans, illegal immigrants, has been this trope that's been trotted out, but I don't think it's an accurate depiction of what is happening in America, what happened to the auto industry. Lost his old occupation, but it wasn't immigration. It was a machine automation that replaced him. I think that our inability to prepare for AI and for um, technology and the way that we've failed to hold companies accountable for um, training their workers for um, this new era, that was something I just wanted to kind of sneak in. Politicians left him corruption since the recession, so he grabs his Smith & Wesson and says he'll teach them all a lesson, get down on the ground. I kind of flesh that out in the second verse as well. He, I, I revealed that he was in war and uh, had PTSD and had his benefits taken from him and just was in this situation that felt so hopeless. Uh, he decided to go out in flames, let it rain over Washington. And then in the bridge, I just, I just wanted to give you a kind of creepy feeling um, that this is real, that these sorts of things, be it technology, gun violence, that these are imminent issues this is not sci-fi this is not futurology like this is fucking now there's a cold wind blowing i'm just warning and preparing yeah there's a cold wind blowing uh, and it's coming for america so boone we we had been kind of sitting with the song for a couple months and, and and we weren't sure where to go out of the bridge originally we just went right back to the chorus but it felt kind of anticlimactic and he kind of came up with this kind of badass like it reminded me of like hendrix with the kind of chord that he hit and made this one of my favorite sections on the whole ep is this kind of instrumental space between the bridge and the final chorus but the whole song was halftime for a long time and it felt a little like sl- sluggish like it, it just didn't have didn't have the the urgency and didn't stand out from other songs like overdose sonically and a friend of mine alex heard the song and suggested that we make the verses a shuffle. And I had not done a single song in a shuffle. It was something that we had always joked about was going to inevitably need to happen. Like every, any rock star that was worth it, that was worth anything had to have a good shuffle. And I like, we kept trying to make one, but it just always for me felt so derivative and I didn't know how to infuse any of the electronic kind of stuff that I wanted to. It just felt like the only way to do it was like make it sound like an ACDC song or something. But um, because we already had the song done and the shuffle was the last thing, uh, it ended up um, being pretty awesome. Hearing Jordan talk about all this, you really get the sense that he's a special artist. I wanted to end this podcast with letting Molly and Johnny talk about what they see that's so unique about him since they work so closely with him. Yeah, I mean, as a human, he's he's saying that he's angry and he's pointing out things that he's angry about, but he's not saying go get the pitchforks necessarily. He's saying, let's all talk about this, which I love because there's anger, but it's not it's in a way that where it's welcoming and he's saying, you know what, like I wanted to say something because I was feeling things. And you know what, if you're feeling things like say something too. And I think that for me, that's something also really exciting is that there that you can talk about things that are upsetting and without aggression or with aggression, but that is proactive and, and welcoming. And there's a kind there's a kindness to that that I really think is really special. Jordan is this really special dude that I think anyone that's been around him or had the pleasure of having a conversation with feels a real connection with. He there's no bullshit. There's no filter. If you ask him 
the right questions, he will explain everything thoroughly so you fully understand why and what he is doing, what is important to him. There's just so much there that like I feel like one is an introvert. I feel like people like him that share my beliefs that get loud and in people's faces about it. Like I need to be around them more because he's saying and doing the things that I feel, but it's like, well, I found the guy that's saying it. Great. Let's, let's run with that. So I just, I feel a connection with him on that level. Um, that it's just, there's so much sincerity within all that to where he's the sweetest guy. And he's, there's a no bullshit filter on top of that. Cause the drugs don't work anymore, anymore, anymore. anymore. Thanks so much for listening. To find more of our podcasts, head to AtlanticPodcast.com. Grandson's A Modern Tragedy Volume 1 is streaming now.